Good evening, Godspeak, one and all. Are the lights all the way up? It looks a little uh, dark in here. Hey, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Our servants will get one of those to you. And uh, we're going to be turning to Genesis chapter 2. We'll be picking up at verse 7 tonight as we look at our message, How to Get a Life. We live in a whole generation that is lost. They, they have no sense of where they came from, where they want to go, and they've been unhinged from the moorings of a Judeo-Christian ethic. And it's only a matter of time, even though it will reach crisis proportions, before they have their own revival. This generation will have its own revival because you cannot be untethered from God and reality very long before you finally wake up and say, what's up? There's got to be some solid truth in this life. With postmodernism coming in and relativism coming in, which both believe there are no absolute truths, you must be able to have fixed points of truth and reality to build your life upon. And if you do not, you are wandering, just lost through life. I was having lunch with a young man, and he was 19. He was going to Nevada Reno College, and he had been there. Uh, He was a um, high achiever, so he started college early. He was already at 19 in his junior year, and he had been living in the dorms. And I asked him, just point blank, here's a college kid. It's right in the middle of COVID. I said, what's going on with with the young people? And uh, he said, they have no sense of their identity. They have no sense of their identity. So they just wander from group to group to group looking for acceptance to find some identity. And that's the difficulty that we have. And when, if you want to know how to get a life, you have to understand your own identity in Christ. Not trying to build your own identity. We live in an area, Hollywood, the land of the stars, that so many young people move to Hollywood to be discovered. They're a beautiful face. They're a handsome face. They have a passion for acting, and they just know they're going to be discovered like other greats at Starbucks with their job, right? They're going to hand that coffee to a movie producer, and he's going to look at them and go, oh, snap, you should be the star of my new film. People long for significance, and I I say that tongue-in-cheek because deep down, everybody has a desire for significance, People go to Nashville if they can sing. They wait tables till they get their big break. They're looking for significance. They're looking for meaning and purpose. And they have some gifts. They have some desires. But we'll see in this passage nine thoughts that we see the first man discovering identity that we can learn lessons from even though this is 6,000 years ago in history. You see, the prototype, the first one, is where we learn all the lessons to be able to go forward from there, right? If you don't have that understanding and that background, even as Jesus talked to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he says, have you not read in the beginning it was not so? Your mindset today is not what the mindset was that God intended. So we have to go back to the original intention We have to go back to the the manufacturer and get the manual about how to do life. I was talking to a couple of uh, 17-year-olds a while back, and they had both got just uh, new iPhones, 
like iPhone, what, what are we, 13, 14, you know, 22, I don't know what it's on, the new iPhone. And they both had it, and they were so happy, they got them together, their buddies, you know, got the new iPhone. But they were Android people before. So, like, this is a new world, right? And I asked the two of them, because I was thinking about some of these concepts, they just got a highly powerful piece of digital capability. And I asked the one, I asked both of them, I said, did either one of you read the manual? And the one kid said, I ran, I mean, he's kind of a, you know, uh, intellectual. I read it from beginning to end. I understand everything perfectly. I asked the other kid, he goes, no, I'm just kind of feeling my way through. And people go out life that way too, right? I'm just kind of feeling my way through it. So let's look at this passage. We're going to pick it up in verse 7 as we see man's creator. The first thought is you have to be in touch in your humanity with your creator and knowing where you came from. It says in verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Unlike the other uh, creations where the Lord just spoke it into existence, he spoke the stars and the sun and the moon into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke, and the uh, sea life was filled with small and great creatures, the land animals and creeping and small and large creatures. But here he takes of the dust of the earth. Now, this is significant because a little later on in this chapter, we're going to find out his name, right? You're familiar with it. It's Adam. But Adam either means dust or red, like red dirt. And so his very beginning, unlike being spoken into existence, and then when we get to the woman's creation, that's even a step beyond because he's not working with dust, though I guess it's already manufactured dust, Adam's side. He's taking part of a man and then creating the woman. So each of these are progressions in how God is intimately dealing with his creation. And it's really hard. The first thing you have to realize is if God can form a man out of dust, out of dirt, and form this incredible being. Every single one of you are fearfully and wonderfully made. If he can create us out of dirt, he is obviously the master creator and we are humble dirt clods, right? So we start with the right mindset. I know people swagger like, I'm a child of God. I'm anointed by the spirit of the Lord. You know, certain uh, ministry styles promote that kind of attitude. I'm a child of the king. I'm like, great. You're an anointed dirt ball. That's what you are. <laughs> we are a child of the king. We are adopted. We can cry, Abba, Father. But never, never forget, at your basic elements, your elements are the same, put together by God, masterfully, like a pile of dirt. Look at this picture. You see the elements that are here. You are 65% oxygen. Think about that. 65% oxygen, you are 18% carbon, you are 10% hydrogen, you are 3% nitrogen, and then there's 7% that is trace elements, including boron, chromium, cobalt, copper, fluorine, iodine, iron, magnesium. I mean, you're just a group of dirt. You're just a pile of dirt anointed and created and fashioned by God because as soon as you die, what do you go back to? Dirt. You go back to dust. You're created from the dust. You're going to go back to dust. Now, finding your identity is twofold. One is that you realize God loves you so much 
that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has created you. Just you, There's only one of you on this planet. There's only one of you. And even though the planet's a big place, you might feel like, I can't do much. Yes, as an individual, you and God can accomplish great things. But in a different way, in the mass of humanity, really, who are you? And that's the tension between humility and significance in your relationship with God. And getting comfortable in your own skin from the beginning for Adam was connected to his relationship with his creator. You remove your relationship with your creator and you are going to find your identity in money or sports or looks or body or, you know, sex, drug, and rock and roll. You're going to find your identity somewhere, but it's not going to be in God. So when you bring the Lord into it, all of a sudden it's like the planets align and things begin to be clear as God begins to rectify, like the man that was demon-possessed in the tombs, and he said there was a, de- a legion of demons inside of him, and as soon as the Lord cast those out and he surrendered to the Lord Jesus, it says he was clothed and in his right mind, and he was seated. He was at rest. He was at peace. His nakedness was covered, and he was right with God for the first time in his life. That's what happens to a man and woman when they come into connection with their creator. So as we start with creation, the next few are just quite obvious. Right? What do you need? You need breath. This Lord says he breathed life into him. Now we should point out before we move on to the next point that you are a threefold creature. You are body, physical. Soul, that means your intellect, your ability to reason, your ability to have emotions, your ability to make choices. That's your soul. You're conscious. You're aware. Your spirit is the spiritual dimension of your body. So you are a tri, you are a trinity in the image of God, if you will. The Lord doesn't have a physical body, but in the sense there's three parts to you. Now God designs in the garden that the spirit should rule over the soul that rules over the body. And we'll find next time we're together in Genesis that that gets reversed after the fall and the flesh, whatever I want, that begins to rule. And even though my mind says that's a bad idea, my flesh says I don't care, right? And the spirit's basically in the basement locked up with no real power in your life. We need basic things. You know, the necessities of life are air, food, water, as we see in the second thing, the food, man's food and water, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. Let's talk a moment about the earlier verses of this chapter that talked about the atmosphere, that there had been no rain on the earth. It appears because when the Lord separates the waters that are below, which become oceans, and the waters above, which become in the firmament or the atmosphere, the sky, that there's a mist that goes up, basically waters everything every day, God's automatic sprinkler system. There's such a moist, heavy content in the atmosphere that there's just a heavy dew every morning that waters everything. There's no rain. The, the uh, toposphere where the craziness that we have all of the, the various wind, rain, snow, it seems to be different. After the flood, it moves into this place. So 
the Lord plants a garden, which means a specific plot, hedged about. It's, uh, it doesn't have fences, but it's got, somehow it's this district plot of ground. And Eden means delight. So it's a plot, the garden, that is delightful. And God plants it, so Adam doesn't even have to plant it to begin with. He's going to manage it, as we'll see in a moment. But the two trees that are there, the tree of life, there's lots of fruit trees. Just think of every fruit tree that exists on this planet, fruits and nuts and various things, and that are all food for Adam. And the water, the rivers that goes out of Eden, it's the watershed, it's the source of four river heads that are going to come out of it. Now, these four river heads that come out, it's interesting in the creation story that the Lord tells us this as we look at the third thought, man's exploration and money, for it says in verse 11, the name of the first is Pishon. These are the four river heads that come from the source that's in the garden. And it is one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and the onyx stones are there. The name of the second river, Gahon, it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Hittichel, or we know it as the Tigris. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth is the Euphrates. Two of these four rivers we know of their whereabouts today. In modern uh, Iraq, you can see them that they come through this. That's why it's called the, the navel or the belly button of civilization. After the flood, Mer Mount Ararat, which is just in northern Iraq, up in the, uh, the Armenian district or country. And so this is the, the very navel of civilization. Now, after the flood, things changed. So you're not going there today looking for, as we saw here, the, the gold of Havilah that is good. Now, why would the Lord talk about gold and precious stones in Genesis, at the creation story, in chapter 2. Because the reality that all the basics that you're going to see is there's going to be a, a monetary system that begins to unfold. There's going to be work that unfolds. We've all already discovered last week that there's six days of work and then a seventh day of rest. All these things are patterns to build a, uh, a person's life, to build a family, to build a culture around even to this day, as we are looking at the American monetary system, if you're a financial person, you know this, people are buying big-time gold right now. Why would they be buying big-time gold? The gold prices are off the chart because the uh, unwise financial uh, philosophy of this administration is, hey, as long as you can print money, you got money. It's like the person that writes checks, right? I got checks. I must have money. <laughs> But money has to be based upon a uh, gross domestic product or value. It used to be based on the gold standard, but we gave that up in, I don't know, the 70s, I believe. And so now, because when a, when the, if you've ever thought of going to uh, Mexico back in the day, and one peso used to be like a dollar, but now it's 5,000 pesos <laughs> for, for uh, you know, a loaf of bread or whatever. It's because their, their, their monetary system collapses. What doesn't collapse is gold and precious stones, real estate, fixed hard assets. So people are seeing the handwriting on the wall in America that as it's headed towards this chaotic financial uh, juggernaut or precipice 
before a big financial collapse. Even this week in the news, right, the Silicon Valley Bank's failure is a major deal. Why? Because it's a harbinger of what could be coming to America. So all the way back in Genesis 2, the Lord just creates Adam, and he creates this garden, and he says, these rivers come out of here, and there's gold in this area, and there's precious stones. Monetary values that have not changed or that still hold value after 6,000 years. So there's going to be a monetary system one way or another. As we move towards these end times, we know that the, the big push in the world is to go to a digital currency so that with one button they can stop all of your access to your money. Digital currency. They want to remove cash. And you'll see this in the next 10 years. You just watch. They're going to be trying to get rid of cash, get rid of cash, get rid of cash, get rid of cash. Because as, as soon as I am now a digital button that can be pushed, they can just turn off my account. I have no access. I have nothing. So, as we move forward, realize that as the Lord lays this out outside the garden, in the garden is all the supplies he needs, food and water. But there's these four rivers that come out of there. It gives you this sense of exploration. There's all this dis also this discovery of there's gold out there. There's gold in their heels. There's on it. There's you know precious stones, because there's a sense in humanity from the beginning here in Genesis two of exploration. Men are curious. I always want to know what's around that curve. What's around that corner? What's over that hill? What's around the bend? There's a curiosity inside of us to discover these things, right? And that's part of the joy of living life. You, when, you, when somebody tells you finally, it took me a long time because I really didn't have a mentor speaking these things into my life, that destinations will always let you down. Like if you say, this is my goal, when you get there, you will be disappointed. I promise you. Absolutely. I don't care what it is. When you get to that goal, you'll be disappointed. When you finally realize, oh, I set a goal and I'm working towards it, but the joy is actually the journey in getting there. I already know that that's not going to fulfill, but the journey getting there keeps me interested in life. And then when I get close, I just redirect my goal so I can continue on a good journey. You see, once you're right with God and you pursue good things, there's a quality of life that begins to elevate in your life that young people don't know about. But the Lord has to be the priority. Pursuing good things have to be the priority. We also have to have man's work. The fourth thought in verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now this is the easiest job on planet earth, right? It's the only job. I think he got minimum wage. It's a perfect garden. There's no thorns or thistles or weeds. That's going to happen after the fall in chapter 3. And there's this automatic sprinkler system. Like he doesn't have to drag hoses around. It's got... Plenty of water, the fruit's just growing like crazy. Now, if Adam was created, what age do you picture Adam? Obviously, the, the old question, did Adam have a belly button? No, right? Because he did not have the umbilical cord experience, unless the Lord just put it there like, hey, this is going to be the future design, you know. Him and Eve given, you know, uh, gave him one. But not only that, uh, in this... Uh, creation dynamic, but he had this maturity. So there are people that argue, there are two groups of people about the book of Genesis creation story. They're called the young earth and the old earth. 
Now, the young earth people see the story starting 6,000 years ago, so they think the, the, the universe and things are about 10,000 years old. The old earth people that still are committed to the six days of creation believe in verses 1 and 2. We don't know what that time frame is, so it could be significant longer because of the age that's built into everything. Well, if God creates, which I believe, Adam at, as a 30-year-old mature male, right? He's a, he's a man. He's 30 years old. He's fully uh, formed because he's got to start work day one. <laughs> go to work. I know, but I just was created. Yeah, I know. Go to work. <laughs> You're going to get your seventh day. You're going to get the, the, your uh, Sabbath, your rest. But if God builds age into Adam, maturity, into Eve, a mature woman, into the plant world of the garden, mature trees with fruit already on them, then obviously can he not build the age of the earth from a human observation perspective as very old, from human's perspective. So I don't really get hung up in the young earth, the old earth. I just don't worry about it. I, I believe in the six days of creation, and I let the young earth, old earth people just duke it out. Because in the big picture, the reality is, is that God can build age in. So I don't need, and that's another thing that comes as we go through this, just the thought of dinosaurs. God created all the dinosaurs. They're magnificent creatures. You know, if you, you just Google right now how many creatures on planet Earth went extinct last year, it'll be like over 100. Like every year, things are going extinct. Oh, just every single year because of different dimensions, human pressure, moving into areas, all those things. So he needs a job. Work is not a curse. People usually say work is a curse and they point to chapter 3. Let me tell you, Adam had a job in chapter 2 where everything was perfect. I have to have something productive to do to get up six days a week and go do. Or I'll go crazy. Right? It's just, I need, I mean, there's nothing like a week or two of vacation. Okay. But man, by the end of that, I cannot wait. Like when all the holiday breaks go on, I don't vacation well. I don't, it's just like, I got to do something. And I want to do something productive. And the other thing is, oftentimes, if I'm not focused and working towards something good, and I have downtime, my sinful nature wants to gravitate towards something bad. So I would rather be busy about good things and focused on the Lord and pursue that which you love to do. Now, God has created you with capacities. He's uniquely made you. Are you doing what you're created to do? That's your job between you and God to get into a field of work. So many people get a degree, they go do the job, they hate the job. They hate the job that they went to. And they're miserable. Now, I want you to know that you transcend life. Woo, I do leadership consulting around the country, churches, various things. That's kind of my thing. You transcend life when you love what you do and you love the people you do it with. Okay, so most people I talk to, they love what they do and they hate the people they work with or they love the people they work with and they hate what they do. Putting those two things together doesn't seem like rocket science, but actually it's kind of challenging. It's kind of hard. So that's what you're working towards in work because work becomes a lot less burdensome. When you get up in the morning like, man, I got something cool to do and I love the people I do it with. That's when you transcend the humdrum drudgery of life into a great space of having a fulfilling work life, a fulfilling experience where you're uh, 
operating in the gifts that you have, you're not, you're not under-challenged and you're not over-challenged. You're the most productive when you're just a little bit challenged. Because if you're under-challenged, you start getting bored. If you're over-challenged for too long a time, you just get so stressed out, you come unraveled. So you, you need this sweet spot. And uh, Adam, it was pretty easy, right? Just wake up, take care of the garden, eat some fruit, eat some nuts, drink some water, go dig for gold, whatever. Right? He's got no laundry. He's got no dishes. He has no garbage disposal. He has no dump yard. Everything's organic. He is living the hippie's dream. Right? So, now we see the first command. Now, everything up to this point, you can receive in a uh, relatively passive way until it comes to this place that now I'm going to restrict one area that you have a choice to pursue or not choose, or, or not. He says in verse 16, a man's commandment, that's the commandment given to man by God, the fifth thought. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now this is the first time Adam, obviously a newbie in his relationship with God, but he doesn't have sin pulling on him. He doesn't have a sinful nature because the fall hasn't happened yet. The devil doesn't show up and taking on the form of a serpent till chapter 3, which we'll look at the next time we're together in Genesis. And so Adam, there's loads of trees in the garden. And people say, well, why did he eat the apple? It doesn't say that he, the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil is an apple. It's apple's got a bad rap. Uh, but... We don't know what that fruit was. But all the, all the trees we d- discovered before, back in chapter, uh, um, verse 9, excuse me, that was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. All, all the fruit trees just looked amazing. I mean, it, it's the healthiest orchard you've ever seen in your life. And so as he sees all of this, there's this tree of life. And the tree of life, however God had designed it, whether it's the enzymes in it, as they ate this fruit of the tree of life, they would live forever. They would never ever, ever die. But if they ate this tree, now out of the hundreds of fruit trees, there's only two trees that are special. One is you'll have eternal life. Basically, you'll live forever. You'll be immortal. And the other is you eat this fruit and you're going to die. Now that seems like a pretty no-brainer, doesn't it? Right? I got hundreds of trees to eat from. There's this tree of life, I'll live forever, but there's this one tree, just one tree, just one, one tree, one tree. Let's get close to that tree. Let's look at that tree. What's that tree look like? What's it, what's it smell like? What's that? I wonder, what, I wonder, you know, how close can I get to that tree and not mess it up? Some people give Adam a bad rap. I've heard preachers say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to punch Adam right in the mouth. <laughs> And I want to tell him, if Adam, Adam hadn't messed it up, you would have, right? Or I would have. So the whole story of redemption, understand this, but realize this. Why would God, this is the Sunday school question, why would God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the first place? Right, if he's God. Why would he give man a choice that he knows? Well, you see, this is the thing about the Lord. Is choice For love to be meaningful, love must have a choice. Do you understand that? 
right? For your marriage relationship to be meaningful, you see there's 4 billion other people that your spouse could have married. 4 billion female, 4 billion male, 8 billion people on the planet. For relationships to be meaningful, you must have choices to engage in that relationship or to leave that relationship or violate that relationship by your own choice. You see, we are created in God's image in a, uh, a plethora of ways, and I mentioned that back in chapter 1, but just to mention a couple. We are created, God has thoughts, God has emotions, and God has a will. You have thoughts, you have an emotion, and you have a will to make decisions. This is opposite from the progressive left and those who believe in evolution. They believe that you are genetically what you are, not only by genetics, but by environment. So you have no free will. You will do what your animal instinct is. That's why they don't want to hold people that are uh, criminals accountable. Because how can, you, how can you blame somebody for, you know, their genetics? How can you blame them? Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says that you have a will to choose. At any given time, there are things in your life you know, you know, you're smart, you're adults. There are things I can choose that will be good for me. And there's things that I can choose that will be bad for me. Now, unlike uh, Adam, Adam had no sinful nature at this point. You and I have a fallen sinful nature and have been redeemed by grace if we love Jesus. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit to resist that. But Adam at this point has no pull towards a downward trajectory or a fallen nature. And we'll see all that unfold in chapter 3. So, verse 6, or excuse me, number 6, man's loneliness and the animal kingdom. In verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to the beast of the field. For, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. God says for the first time in the whole creation story that it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him, compatible to him, one that becomes his soulmate. And then he gives us this project. It seems like it's a disconnected thought. It's uh, like, well, you were just talking about him being alone and now you gave him the job to go name the animals. Well, really, the Lord's trying to awaken Adam's need. What he's going to see in the animal kingdom is Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, Mr. and Mrs. Deer. Mrs. You know, I mean, all the way through, it's just like there's a male and a female. Here's the male peacock with all of his colors. Here's the hen peacock. Here's all, all of these things. There's this, this male-female gist. Bob Dylan uh, wrote a song. If you're a Bob Dylan fan, you probably have it in your head. I can't read this passage without thinking about it. I'm not a Bob Dylan fan. I'm an anti-fan. But God bless you guys. And if you want to serve somebody, it might be the devil. It might be the law. But you kind of serve somebody. But he sang this song. God gave names to all the animals in the beginning. He goes through this whole thing. He's like, Bob Dylan sang a song about Adam naming the animals? He's a creative genius. What can I say? Greatest songwriter of all time, according to the music world. But imagine Adam. He's going through. He's just naming all these animals. And, and he's, 
He's brilliant. He's got this incredible intellect. God got put inside of Adam. And, and just so that you know, Adam is going to live 930 years. 930 years. All the people before the flood lived almost 1,000 years. Methuselah lived the longest, which was 969 years. Jared was second at 962 years. But Adam's going to live 900 years, 930 years. But if he starts day one with absolute brilliance and he's naming the animal kingdom based on their character, tigers and bears and duck-billed platypuses and, you know, look at how slow that creature moves. He, that's, he's a sloth. He's naming all these animals. But when it's all done... Can Adam find the kind of companionship that deeply connects to him as a soulmate? Now, no doubt there is a really cute black lab there, right? And Fido is his name. And they play a little fetch. Hey, I'm going to call you, you know, a Labrador retriever. And he could have just said, hey, that's all I need. Man's a dog's man's best friend. I got my dog or I got my cat or got my horse. Kind of the three animals that people love. There's nothing wrong with loving animals. But <laughs> I know some people after bad marriages have preferred the puppy to, to, the, uh, <laughs> to the last spouse that they had. We'll, we'll go any further with that. But the reality is, is that he could not find in his observation in the animal world something that could in a sense, complete him, fulfill him, be only what the feminine to the masculine could be. You see, chapter 1 says God created the male and female. He created them in the beginning and told them to be fruitful and multiply. In chapter 2, he gives the details of how he then does that. This is backing up and getting all the details. So now we see when he understands that, there seems to be Adam gets a clue. And sometimes you wonder that when you're watching young people, right, grow up. You're looking at your son, your daughter, their, you know, late 20s, early 30s. Mom and dad are thinking, golly, you think he's ever going to, you know, date a girl? Or they're looking at their daughter. She's busy in her academic career and going for a Ph.D. But there's no, you know, hey, do you think we'll ever get grandkids? I, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. And, and you wonder what's going on in their minds. And yet we live in a, a generation where people basically live with relationships with all the benefits sexually and everything else with no marriage, right? So they just go through life just uh, basically uh, having many monogamous relationships. They call it monogamy. That's funny. Uh, but, you know, three months, six months here and there. And what happens is there's not that dynamic of a, a sexual purity that actually makes you awaken to a desire to have a spouse because you don't want to live in sexual sin. And I see even some parents that have this big priority in their, their minds that, you know, son, daughter, you know, your degree is the most important thing in the world. No, your relationship with God is the most important thing in the world. And everything has to follow and flow from that. Your relationship with God to honor God and whatever it takes to honor God, he will help you through the college years or he'll help you through whatever. But the thing is, is people just reverse that and say, you know what, just live willy-nilly, helter-skelter, do whatever you want to do through, uh, go for it for a decade through college and blow through as many relationships as you possibly can try out. And then at the end of all that, settle down. 
Well, those who study relationships say that actually that does more psychological damage than a committed relationship, even when it starts young. Here, the Lord is going to intervene for Adam. Adam doesn't know what he needs. He's never seen a woman before, right? He's created nothing. He's just a pile of dirt that's been graced by God. That's all he is. And he can name animals. That's cool. But the seventh thing we see is man's soulmate in verse 21 and 22. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So he... He puts Adam to sleep. This is the first surgery, obviously. God performs surgery, anesthetic, puts him out. He's knocked out. Because Adam can really, he doesn't have any concept of what he needs. And this is true in our life. Oftentimes when we're single, you know, you have this thought of who you think you need. And God says, no, I know what you need. And what you're looking for is not what you need. But I will bring to you what you need if you'll be patient and prayerful. Keep your eyes open, obviously, but be patient and prayerful. And I'll bring you what you need. Adam, he's just like, you know, Adam, you don't have a clue. I'm knocking you out, and I'm creating what you need. Because you don't even know what you need. And some of you could testify that that, to that being true in your own life. I didn't know what I needed. I went through life like this hard-hearted guy. I wouldn't let anybody in. And I just, you know, I went through girls like just, you know, Drinking a Pepsi and throwing it away. Just and because I wasn't going to let anybody get close to my heart because I had been hurt growing up through all the brokenness that I went through. You know, my, between my mom and dad, there's seven uh, marriage and divorces. I'm like, that's a joke, right? And nobody knows how to make things work. I'm not going to be a part of that. So I just wanted no commitments. But then there was this really cute blonde that approached me about me taking her to my junior prom. Now, I'm not a prom guy. I have an old pickup. I'd rather be spotlighting and shooting something in the desert at night than going to a prom in a tuxedo. But she was super persuasive and super cute. And, uh, and for whatever, you know, God's dynamic, he knew that I needed somebody to break through all of the barriers, all the defenses, everything that I'd built up in my life to protect myself. He brought Tammy, and Tammy navigated that labyrinth of hard-heartedness and got to the back of who I really was and what I was really looking for. Because deep inside, I was really just a lonely guy. I had a smile and a giggle on the outside and a hard heart that said, nobody's going to get close to me. That's how I protect myself. I don't care about anybody. I don't let anybody in. That's the way I like it. And the Lord knew that I needed somebody that had this superpower of relationship, who is my wife now, of uh, 37 years, and to break through all of that stuff. So when the Lord put Adam to sleep and he took part of him out of him, now we say his side, his rib, we don't, we don't know what that really means. Uh, we know, you know, genetically what God can do. I mean, he can make something out of nothing. So we have no idea. But there was something that he took from man that he wanted to fashion that was so much a part of him that Adam could, when he saw her, when he emotionally connected with her, 
when his eyes locked on her for the first time, that this would be his response, that somehow something that was inside of him now is represented in a full female human body, and it's everything I've been looking for. And so much so, because it came from me, somehow in love, I want to pull it inside of myself, body, soul, and spirit, with intimacy in such a way that I could not even describe with words. Adam does his best to describe it in verse 23. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Man in the Hebrew is ish. Uh, Woman is isha. So it's like a play on just man. So she was taken out of man. Now Eve was created for Adam. This is a New Testament principle when it comes to leadership that people, especially today, I mean, the patriarchy is the problem with our lives. The patriarchy. Like they're psycho about the patriarchy. It's what's destroyed everything. No, it's not. God's creation and design is for a purpose. Paul tells us the head is God, and even Jesus submits to the Father. He's the head of Jesus, and Jesus is the head of man, and and man is the head of woman. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Now, if you want to see people like blow a cork, then you take it to the next level and say, the husband gets to be, have leadership, the head of the family, and the wife is to submit, that he is to sacrificially love her like Christ loved the church. So they're to mutually submit. The man is to love his wife like Jesus, and she is to submit and yield her will as they go through life, as they talk and wrestle through issues in their life. And people say... I'm not so, I said, take a chill. This is God's plan. This is God's blueprint. This is the one that works. And if you don't want God's plan, I beg of you, don't get married. Be single. Be the head of your own destiny. Do your own thing. Ladies, you can be the CEO. You can be the astronaut. You can be whatever you want. But even in a healthy relationship, you'll probably go farther than you would ever go on your own. Because when you have a husband that loves you like that, like Christ loved the church and lays his life down for you, you're going to find a fulfillment that your deep soul is looking for. Husbands are looking for respect and women are looking for love. And so when women respect men and women receive the love of a man, they both have a fulfillment inside of them that begins to expand to transcend the normal dynamic of life and relationships. So when marriage is really good, it's the closest thing to heaven on earth you're ever going to experience. And when it's really bad, it's the closest thing to hell on earth you're ever going to experience. It is both ends of the spectrum. And I have experienced and visited both places consistently over 37 years of marriage, right? Because you can't work through hard things. You can't wrestle through difficult things without get, you know, going through the, the strife of those things. But I would rather fight with my wife to get to an expected end that is healthier and to have the the day or the week or the month of tension trying to wrestle through things and get to the other side with her than to trade her in with my pickup at the next time I get a new rig, right? And just say, and that's what happens in marriage. It gets tough. Get rid of that one. I didn't get the right one. I got it. You know, I promise you that next one is going to have some strong opinions too, right? And she's going to share her heart with you and you're going to have to hear and listen and work through that stuff. Men are afraid of emotional turmoil. They want peace. I just want peace. (laughs) Women are more afraid of the 
the physical exposure as we see the nature of these two different things. Well, then we have a man's parents. Now you throw the in-laws in. I mean, we've already got some real excitement going on. But verse 24, a man's parents. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. And he's to be glued or joined to his wife, as we'll see in a moment. So how do you be a good in-law? Realize this, parents, some of you right now are lousy parents of adult children. You're just, you stink. You're terrible parents of adult children because you're still trying to tell them what to do. You're still trying to lay things out for them. You're still instructing them. They are no longer, now, if they live in your basement, that's a little different, right? Right, they're still under your roof. I'm saying if they've moved out and they have their own life, then if you want to be a good, if you want to be a good in-law, and now I have a daughter-in-law and a son-in-law. I have two children, and my son's been married for 15 years. My daughter's been married for 13 years. We have two grandkids. So this is the, uh, the, this is the quick start if you want to be a good in-law. First of all, you have to have your heart open to that uh, son-in-law or daughter-in-law. You have to keep your mouth shut. You have to keep your hands off and stay out of their business. And you have to turn the prayers on and pray for them all the time. If they ask for advice, you're welcome to give it. If they don't ask for your advice, that means they don't want your advice. So stop offering your advice. And if they say they can't make it for Thanksgiving or Christmas, don't throw a tantrum and act like it's the end of the world. Because if you invited friends for Christmas or Thanksgiving and they couldn't make it, they go, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm doing something else. You would, it's your friends. You'd go, oh, that's okay, no worries. But people, you know, moms are depressed for two months. This is come to Thanksgiving. I know they're 45 years old and they have their own family, but they don't come for Thanksgiving. <laughs> so you realize the transition of kids is they're dependent on you and you, you train them. If you're a good parent, you want them, those who are dependent on you, to become independent, right? You want them to go out on their own, work, pay their own bills, get their own place, move out so you and your wife can run around in your underwear again, right? <laughs> have the empty nest. So if you... <laughs> Many parents do not let their kids become independent because they want them dependent, so they have their built-in friend and buddy. I've got my built-in friend and buddy. It's the child I raised. They're not raised to be your built-in friend and buddy. They're built to grow, go from dependence to independence, then interdependence when they choose to. You can watch the kids. We're going to have the holidays. You know, we have to, when you have in-laws, you have to alternate holidays, those who get Christmas this year, those who get it next year. You have to share and be mature adults. It's a very interesting phenomenon. I don't know if you've heard of it lately, so I thought I would mention it to you, that this is the way you have a, a friendship with your adult children. And stop, especially those who have money, oftentimes the chain they keep connected to them is the purse. I'll do this for you, money, money, money. If you want to have a great relationship with your kids, you got to change that dynamic. Well, lastly, we see man's sexuality in the night thought to how to get a life as you leave primary relationships, men and women, husbands and wives. Hey, you, you leave mom and dad so that your spouse now is going to be the primary relationship. So if you don't discover that priority, you're going to ruin your marriage. Because it's always going to feel like there's a, this other intimate relationship. You're, never, ever, ever share your problems with your parents about your marriage. Ever. Unless it's physical and dangerous and you've got to save your life. Don't tell your parents about your problems. Why? Because you told them this week you had a fight. You guys patched it up in two days. And then Thanksgiving's two weeks away and your parents 
now have this beef with your, the in-law because of the fight you told them about. You're, bring, you're having them bring that there. Parents, don't get involved with counseling. When, when your kids need counseling, send them to a counselor you know. Send them to the pastor at the church. Send them somewhere besides you. Stay out of their business so you can love them and pray for them and stay out of their business. It's fascinating to me that wonderful, godly, mature Christian parents in their 60s could be such lousy parents to their adult children. It's just shocking. Because they've never discovered how to let go and let their kids be adults. So we see man's sexuality and be joined to his wife. This literally means to be glued to his wife. And they become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This is total and complete openness between each other. There's a physical nakedness. There's going to be an emotional nakedness. There's going to be a spiritual nakedness in their relationship with God, their emotions with one another, their physical intimacy. They're both naked and unashamed. And what a beautiful thing in a marriage relationship, because that's the place actually marriages are trying to get in our fallen state. We bring all kinds of struggles and insecurities and shame and past and all this. We have all this, you know, garbage that we bring with us. And we bring it into the relationship. And what we do with each other, in, in first in dating and then in marriage, is we begin to expose actually honestly who we are. And as soon as it scares the other person, then we close it back down. And we found our, our limit. We found our barrier. Like, oh, okay, we, I can't go here with them, right? So we realize it's got to stay surfacey here or above in the relationship dynamic. So there's five levels to intimate communication when it comes with simply your words. First, there's surface conversation, you know, oh, the sun's shining outside, or the facts, oh, well, you know, this is what happened uh, this week in the, in the news, it's about facts. But then when you get to the third level, ideas and opinions, that's where you start becoming more vulnerable because you have ideas about things, each of you have ideas and opinions that differ, and that's where conflict begins to come, right? And, and then the fourth level is that you share how you feel about those ideas and opinions because now you're expo- exposing your emotions that are connected to the, these ideas and you realize maybe they're really in opposition with your spouse. And fifth is basically a, a loyal confrontation. Like there's, there's something we're really struggling with and we have to have the courage to talk about it and confront it. Because in relationships, you're going to have money problems, you're going to have in-law problems, you're going to have vocational problems, you're going to have physical problems, you're going to have sexual problems, you're going to have uh, selfishness problems. You get, when you get married, and that's what I tell people that are single, you know the single people that have the stars in their eyes? Oh, when I get married, oh, I'm going to find my knight in shining armor, and my princess, you know, Rapunzel up in her tower, and I'm going to rescue her. And we have these ideas, you know, these Walt Disney movie ideas of romance. And then we get involved in these relationships, and you're really trading this bucket of problems of loneliness and all that it entails, and maybe struggling with your sexuality because in your loneliness and not having a place to express, and that's, you know, these two that are, they're, they're naked and unashamed, but they become one flesh, and literally that means when they are joined together in the sexual act. So 
you're now one flesh. It's the only relationship that you are one flesh with on the planet. You can have a best friend and go out for coffee, right? But you're not one flesh. You're not joined body, soul, and spirit to each other. And when this happens in this, this intimate level of relationship to fallen people like you and me, there's a lot of sparks and fireworks that go on. A lot of struggles, a lot of submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord, a lot of confronting hard things and challenging things and things that we, we want to go through life like this. Like, uh, I'm, I'm just going to ignore this. And I do agree with James Dobson. He said, you know, when, before you get married, you should have your eyes wide open. And when you get married, you should have them half shut. I mean, I do agree with that dynamic. In the sense that we're, we're fallen people, so we don't want to be picking each other apart. But single people think they're going to solve their problems of loneliness. And they may solve the problem of loneliness because now they got somebody to fight with. And now they have the bucket of problems. Now i got to figure out how to get along with another human being under the same roof for the next 60 or 70 years of my life. Because they say now, well, you're going to live till you're 90. That's a long haul. I've been with Tammy from our first date 40 years. I'm not even halfway there. That's a long haul, right? So everything that was missing in Adam, he discovers here. You see, this is the thing, because we live now in a culture that has abandoned absolutely every point, these nine points that I have shared with you, a culture that has abandoned every single one of them. You have no relationship with your creator. Don't get a job. The government should give you a check, right? I'm not going to work. I'm not gonna, I mean, just like on and on and on. And, and to say that, uh, you know, here's this, this man and the woman. How dare God say that he created them male and female? How dare he? He's the manufacturer. He can do whatever he wants. I don't care how many 72 fluid genders you say there are. There's only a man and a woman. You can, you can chop off body parts. You can try to manipulate, and man can do surgery. I promise you, not that I encourage you to go on the Internet and check it out, but it's like Frankenstein meets Frankenstein. I mean, it's like seriously a scary thing because it's a desire, a craving that is out of sync with the owner's manual of the, your creator. So people are looking for a place to express their sexuality. But the only place, the Bible's narrowness in a place to, to fulfill sexual fulfillment is so small a target, a man and a woman in marriage. The only place. If you're having sex outside of marriage, fornication, if you're having extramarital stuff going on and, you're, and you are married, adultery, the homosexual dynamic, all those things are out. All of those things miss the mark for what God's plan is. The writer of Hebrews says it so succinctly in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. There's, it's pure. There's nothing wrong with the sexuality that happens in the marriage bed. But fornicators outside of marriage and adulterers, extramarital affairs, God will judge. God will bring discipline, judgment to those who live in sin. And once you finally own and understand God's desire for sexuality, and if you're single and you're struggling with your sexuality, Paul says you should pray that you get married so you don't burn with passion, if you have no self-control. Now, some of you may be gifted as a single person, right? You just have no need for the other person. I know people, especially if you're older and you've uh, had marriage, done that, I got a cat, I'm good, right? Uh, I totally get that. But you're in a different place in life than a 25-year-old. You know, when you're 70, you're just in a different place. 
So what do you do with that sexuality? You have to point it in the direction that God's created it for. And you go, well, I had a terrible previous marriage. I want a place to express my sexuality, but I'm terrified of getting into a new marriage. I promise you that next marriage is going to be just as terrifying as the first one. Because you're going to have challenges to work through. (laughs) Martin Luther, the priest who was celibate, but as he studied the scriptures, realized that celibacy was not something the New Testament taught. He married a nun. So a nun and a priest got married and they had a passel of kids. And he said, he said, marriage is God's school of character building. Because you will grow like nobody's business when you get married. I tell people, when you want to know how selfish you are, get married. You're going to discover real quick how selfish you are. Then if you want to know how doubly selfish you are, have kids on top of that. Because whatever of you was left, the kids suck all the life out of you. Right? No sleep, no money, no energy. And all through it all, what are you learning to do? Become a servant that honors God. Servanthood is how to be great in God's kingdom. And Adam, this first example, when we go back there, we discover really how to get a life that has, is centered and connected and rooted in the foundation of God's plan for you, for me. And it works. And it's fruitful. And I have satisfaction and significance and meaning and purpose and peace and fulfillment. And I can only get it in my relationship with him. Father, we ask that you would help us as we look at your word. Lord, we pray that you would build us up by your spirit, strengthen us in your love. I just pray for those who are lonely right now. They're single and they're lonely. I pray for them. I pray that your spirit would be their comfort and that you would bring that that man or that woman into their life that loves you and that would be a tremendous blessing and soulmate to them. Lord, I pray for those who are married and they're struggling through. This is a tough season right now in their life. And um, Lord, I pray that you would give them grace to work through it with your spirit's help with love, patience, telling the truth in love, working through the hard stuff, having hard conversations. And that they would come out the other side stronger because of it. Lord, I pray for those who are, um, have lost heart and they're just right now uh, ready to throw in the towel on their marriage. They think if they, they start over with someone else, it's gonna solve all their problems. Lord, I pray that you give them revelation Give them insight about the future. That the same challenges they had in this relationship, though they may even be buried a bit, will lie there in the future for them in another relationship. Give them the grace where they're at, to grow where they're at, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.